Hi, folks. My name is Greg Parsons, and I'm the host of the Public Function Show. Do you love TypeScript? Do you love CSS? Well, let me tell you something. You've come to the very right place. We talk about both those things every single week on this show with my very smart and very good-looking co-host, Albert Park. Jump right in. This is episode number 33. And welcome to the Public Function Show. I am one of your hosts, Albert Park. This is episode number 33. We thought we'd do something a little bit different this week. We thought we'd put together some clips, some highlights, some fun discussions from our previous 32 episodes and combine them all together for you in one nice little episode. This is for all of our listeners who have been with us and would like to reminisce about the, some of the highlights of the show. This is for any of our new listeners who want to get caught up and get up to speed as to what it is we're doing here on Public Functions. So without further ado, we're going to jump into the first clip. This is from episode nine. CSS is hard. We're talking about grid systems. We're talking about Flexbox. Check it out here. One of the things that is good about grid systems is the idea that it is a non-coding development concept that should be easily communicable to designers and people who are responsible for coming up with web designs, right? Hey, align everything this certain way. Center things this certain way. If you have three of the, three items in this row, they all are centered in the same way. That concept should not be a, oh, that's too technical. Oh, that's a front-end developer thing. That should be a universal, anybody who builds things for the web should understand how that concept works. If you don't have a clear understanding between your designer and your developers on even what a grid is or how it works or why you should use it, then you're going to have problems. You and I have both been in this situation where we've worked with designers and developers, well, not developers, but designers at least, who maybe don't have the greatest grasp on how the how and why of a grid, and it causes a lot of pain. Yeah, but I mean, with with having, uh, hold on a sec. With having flexbox, you don't really need a grid. You can make every single horizontal column a one-off. Yeah, you can one-off every row. Yeah, with flexbox. So as long as they understand that this row is going to be, however you tell me to make this row work then the next row can be completely different. That's true, yeah. So you can go, like with Bootstrap, one of the big problems with Bootstrap 3 is if you chose to make your website, say you're like new to see, to Bootstrap. So if you go to Bootstrap 3 and you look at the types of containers and you make the container uh, fixed, not fixed, what's the one where it has the paddings on either side? This is a regular container. Okay, so you use a regular container as your first container in your entire app. You're stuck with the percent margins on the sides for every row that for comes in every that container. row inside which we had one time on a project someone was designing a news type site and they used the standard container for the whole site and then in that they would put more rows with more containers but the problem was every single you couldn't break out of the 80 percent width container to go back to a full bleed component 
So they basically did it backwards. Yeah. Those should be different containers. Yeah, and but they, that's a simple... Well, the, the, the parent should be... You also need to design around that is the thing. Well, the, the parent container should be fluid. It should be full width. The parent should be fluid. And then in that, you'll make a row. Typically, like the header would be another full width. Like the masthead image would be another full width image or full width container. And then the next row down might be a percent one. So if you look at Bootstrap's page, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. The top bar is fluid. The next bar down, the next row down is fluid. And then the one below that is contained. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. But if you give Bootstrap to like a young developer, they might make the mistake of using the regular container and then start design. Because most websites, if you get them as comps, like they, there won't be such a clear delineation that it's not. It's not a, a an eighty percent width site. So, like in this particular case, I mean, we're looking at this visually, but the blue bar goes the full width. But if yeah, that but blue it's bar, it's a completely separate container from the rest of the site. Yeah. So no, I know they they basically made this top bar up here a fluid container, two one fluid container with two rows, or two fluid containers with two rows, row each, whichever one they did, and then they have another row with a fluid container. But then inside of that, it actually has an 80% width. Yeah. So, Which you can do because it's turtles all the way down. It's that's turtles. Idea. But, but like that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing. And then the whole, the whole argument with Bootstrap 3 life, like for the 10 years that this was the legit thing to use, is that all Bootstrap sites look the same. They always had the same kind of grids. They always had the same percentages, the same columns. They had 12 columns, 80% width or full bleed with 12 columns. And there wasn't like the ability to be like, oh, I want a 24 column grid. I mean, you can with Bootstrap. You can, can. define the columns, but you're not going to start with a 24 column grid and then switch to 12 and then break it back out to 24. The whole thing that's so great about Flex is that you can just take every row as a unique and delicate flower. Yeah, and it figures it out. Like if you have seven elements, yeah, it'll, just, it'll seven. just figure it out. So you can like contain one, you can create a regular row that's full width. And then inside of that, you can put a container that's 80%. And then inside of that, you can put another row. And then in that, you can say this container is flex space between, you put four things in it. Yeah. Like and it's then so flexible. It's very flexible. Which is cool. It's nice. It and does then, solve a lot of problems. Yeah, it's pretty neat. And then you like look at uh, CSS grid and you start to see like there's this one... Uh, link somewhere where uh, somebody basically created a bunch of examples with CSS Grid and like one of them is a ticket to Hogwarts and it has like some stuff that's horizontal and then on the other side there's a dividing bar and then it's vertical. So it's like a legit ticket, like a train ticket. Oh. But designed in CSS, fully fluid. You, you resize the page, the ticket stays the same size. It's like perfectly contained. But it doesn't run on IE which is always fun. Oh, that's okay. Microsoft's going to solve that problem for us very shortly here, so it's well, fine. Well, are they? I've heard, I mean, it refer, I've heard this new project referred to as Edgium, which is cute. <laughs> that's cute. But the problem with that is like, you, you still, when you're designing for a client, you have to go for the lowest common denominator. And like Flexbox has some problems, but it is way better than using a grid, which is why if you look at Bootstrap 4, it's all, it does still have the traditional columns, that are the grid that you can use, but the grid is built out of Flexbox. So you can either use it or not use it. But that's where, when I was looking at Bootstrap 4 originally, when I, I don't know, they may have changed it. It might be better, but 
when I was looking at it originally, it felt like it was trying to live in both worlds, in the grid world with 12 columns. And then also you could have these fluid flex containers that would be, and they were trying to like overload the containers to be like, oh, this one's flex between or space between or whatever, or the oh, line yeah, items yeah. end. Or what do you think? Yeah. They tried to add these pseudo classes to things. And you're like, just leave the flex alone. Just like use Flexbox. But they tried to like help with it. Yeah, I, I think that you're going to have a bad time if you try to mash Bootstrap and flex like your own one-off Flexbox together too much. Um, if, if you're going to go with Bootstrap, if you're going to make that decision, you really should just go, okay, we're going to do it the Bootstrap way and kind of make our website look kind of bootstrappy, which is fine. I know I mean, you looks, were saying that... It looks better on Bootstrap 4. It's not as bootstrappy because you look at the website itself... And it, it doesn't look like an 80% width, 12-column situation. Yeah, and that's, that's, that is my response to what you were saying about people's criticism of Bootstrap initially is that everything looks very bootstrappy. It's like, well, do a better job of designing. Like, Bootstrap does not make... Uh, using Bootstrap does not make websites look bootstrappy. It's, if you design it, something, if you use Bootstrap in a way that looks bootstrappy, then it's going to look bootstrappy. But you can build things that don't look bootstrappy the bootstrap way and make everybody happy. CSS is hard, folks. CSS is hard. That's a theme that you'll hear from a lot of our episodes and a lot of our shows going back and also probably going forward as well. Moving on, keeping it moving here, going to the next episode, next clip. This is from episode 10, Edge Case Machine. This is a discussion about tooling around your projects, how to set things up, how to get things going, and how important it is to spend time on this, on your projects. Let's listen now. You should consider your tooling as your number one thing that you do when starting a project. No, n- number one. Well, next really? to like choosing the technologies, but that usually is already given, uh, defined, or you've already done some level of research to figure out what you want to do. Like, are you going to use React? Yeah, it's probably already known. Are you going to use Vue for this particular project? Sure. Are you going to use PHP? Whatever that is, those are already in the project. Very, very early on, probably at the planning stage. But then the minute that you actually sit down to start writing code, the first thing that I ever do is set up the project, set up the folders, set up the GitHub repo, set up the Webpack config, all that kind of stuff. Set up ESLint, set up Prettier, set up StyleLint, argue with devs about whether or not StyleLint should be in there, whether or not ESLint should be in there. TypeScript all the things. Or if you need TypeScript, set up TypeScript. Yeah, so you're saying that the, the tooling stuff should be kind of at the level of when you actually like start a GitHub repo, like that early in the yeah. process, right? The first person, whoever, whoever is in charge of creating the repo, which is usually the lead dev, the principal engineer, the tech director, whatever word it is at whatever organization you work at, they're probably going to set up the project initially. Sometimes what will happen is that someone will create like a proof of concept like a senior dev or like a mid-level dev or just someone else will create a proof of concept project and then that will become the project. So when I have things like that happen, I'll take their proof of concept and then I'll overhaul it with all the things that I expect to be there for a project. So I'll add, if it doesn't come with Prettier, I'll add it. If it doesn't come with ESLint, I'll add it. Things like that. So I always make sure it kind of conforms to like a something that I would expect to be released. And the, I think the biggest thing that people miss is production builds. Mm. 
Yeah. That's something that I I have forgotten about quite a bit because I'm very much like, it's very easy to fall into this rabbit hole of, oh, it works on localhost. The localhost is the only thing I'm worried about. And then it doesn't work on anything else. And then there's a problem. So I agree with you that that that's a step that should be architected carefully as early in the project as possible. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's, there's a, there's a lot of things that people have done, like um, what is it called? Uh, Gatsby, the thing we talk about all the time, and I just forgot because yes. it's the weekend and I'm not thinking about work. The Gatsby has a Gatsby build by default, like it's in the project. A lot of projects have that; they'll have a production build concept. But what I found with like a lot of projects is that a lot of not like Gatsby as a project, but like your project that you're building. That isn't all that you need. You don't just need Gatsby build. You'll probably have to override something. You'll probably have to add something. You'll have to add more to Webpack. You'll have to set up CDN considerations for the CDN sometimes. You'll have to, um, I don't know, just so many other things. So don't assume that just because Gatsby has Gatsby build and it builds for production that it's going to work. Yeah, it's very hard to, it's very hard for something that is off the shelf like that which to be fair, Gatsby Build is very, very good, does a lot of good things. It's very hard for something out of the box like that to cover all the cases in every kind of project, Mm -hmm. right? There are almost always going to be project-specific items that you'll need to build into whatever process that you're using. Things like minification or any kind of things like that where there's a, a step that is taken that is specific to a project and is not necessarily common to other things. We've run into that quite a bit on a couple different things. It's always something different. And that's kind of why things need to be thought about and taken care of at the beginning. You heard it here first, folks. Take care of your tooling. Get that set up. It'll save you a lot of heartache later. All right, moving on. Next clip. This is from episode number 24. Constant Gardener. This is a discussion around continuous integration and continuous delivery and how sometimes people get it mixed up and what the differences are and how you can use this in your own projects, in your own workplaces to make things better for everyone involved. So check it out now. The idea with continuous deployment is that the after it's already been integrated into a branch and maybe it's been tested and run on Jenkins, you can then go into that, uh, like a different job in Jenkins, say. Like there's one that's like constantly on every merge, every every PR into master, whatever, every merge, it's running the tests and telling you if they fail. So you get annoyed by the email and it's just telling you like, hey, your tests are now failing. Someone on this branch is breaking your code. And then the whole entire team would be notified, right? That's the continuous integration portion. But continuous delivery is actually the act of triggering the build yourself, but it doesn't have to be automatic. Oh. So that's when you go into Jenkins and you say deploy. Which is what we used to do a lot on projects that we've worked on where you would, sometimes those two terms are joined together. So the continuous integration is the aspect of bringing them into a mainline branch. And then maybe then your Jenkins job or your Go CD or whatever you're using would pick up that change, run your unit tests, and then wait 
and it's just sitting there for you to do something. And right, it says, it'll just run the test and then regardless of the outcome of the test, it just it doesn't do anything else. It doesn't do anything. But if you go to the server and then at some time in the day, you know, this is when you're at, on your job and your team's like 5 p.m., we're going to deploy. Well, and then sometimes maybe, you know, the deployment doesn't happen at 5. It happens at 6 because somebody wasn't ready and someone's waiting, right? Right. That's that whole workflow where, you know, you have your principal engineer or somebody is just like, waiting around for all the code to be in place and to be integrated and tested and working together to be deployed to some kind of like staging environment. And then maybe the next day, QA comes in and they test the work the developers did yesterday. Yes. That's the whole continuous deployment model. Continuous delivery is what is kind of the new hotness now um, and has been for like the past five or so, six years and like the really highly functional teams is the idea that all of that happens automatically. All of it is automated. Every Well, even, even now uh, with continuous integration, whenever there's a pull request, so it's kind of like you, could, you can take continuous delivery all the way up to the edge and then just not implement it. So right. that's why the terms are sometimes interchanged incorrectly, is that part of the process of building Jenkins, let's just stick with Jenkins because I've already said it and explained it, that concept of having a... a a CI CD server running is that it just depends on the types of jobs that you've written determines what part of that chain you're integrating. So either you're doing integration, deployment, or delivery is just a, it's a slight change based on how those jobs are configured. But in reality, you probably have some kind of job that's going to trigger whenever there's typically the, the best way that you do this for smaller jobs. I don't know about like big companies, but like smaller jobs is that whenever there's a pull request against either developer master, you trigger a job. Right. So you typically don't want to have, especially if you're doing continuous delivery, unless you have like a Kubernetes and some crazy high throughput deployment system, you typically don't want every single commit. You really never would want every commit to every branch being tested. No, you'd want the, the most often, and the reason why that is bad is because there's so many commits. Yeah. There's a ton of commits. It, would just, it doesn't commit make three any times sense. in a row. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to run maybe like an entire integration test suite against one commit. Unless right? they're really fast. Unless they're really fast, but any large, non-trivial size app is going to have, especially with a, like 100% reliable test coverage, is going to be, a, that's still going to be a pretty big test it's gonna suite. Be, if it's any, my, my, my thought is that if it's any longer than a minute or two, you don't want to have it run on every commit. No, absolutely not. So if your unit tests... Um, for whatever reason, like you have permutations of data or some kind of like conditional tests or you run it through a suite or say you do actually have like integration tests where you have Puppeteer or some kind of outside-in test running things and opening up browsers. Yeah. That stuff takes forever. It takes a long time. Like even simple tests to just test a couple things and click through a couple use cases could take five minutes. Yeah. So if every single time one of your developers commits or triggering this job, you're going you're gonna to make it so that your CI environment is going to be backlogged with tasks. It's never going to get done. And it's going to sit there and run them one after another. And from one commit to the next, they may not be relevant because somebody committed and then they're like, oh, crap, I forgot to, all of a sudden I broke the package JSON. That job fails. And then the next job runs and it succeeds. So the one in the middle was pointless. And yeah. were two minutes apart. Yeah, I did a commit. the tests take five minutes. I did a commit and I left my semicolons out and Greg got really mad at me. So I had to do another commit to put my semicolons in. And we had to run, <laughs> run our entire test suite Four times in that scenario, right? Because yeah. just because of semicolons, and that that's a perfect example of that. So, to get back to your point, the re, the 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 way you do run it instead of against every single commit, you would do something that's a bit more granular, like a pull request, or yeah. you could even be another step removed and say, 
uh, you cut a specific branch for a specific release mm-hmm. and say, all right, Tuesday, 4 p.m., pencils down. Yeah. All commits that are in, everything that is merged into this release.1.0.62, final, release, final, final, final copy of the branch is going to have the entire test suite run against it at Tuesday, 4.01 p.m. Mm-hmm. before we deploy it. Yeah, That's I mean, one way to do it, right? You're kind of funneling everything into one run of the test suite so you're not overdoing it. Yeah, and we're kind of getting into a little bit of like GitFlow, which is a funny, funny well, thing. Well, they're related. <laughs> they, they are. It actually makes sense they because are. all these things are related. GitFlow is related. Unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing is related. Architecture of your environments is related. Mm-hmm. All the DevOpsy kind of stuff that we've talked about on the show, all that stuff is related. And this is, this is why this is such an interesting topic because it brings all of that stuff together, right? If you've got junior front-end developer over here who all they're doing is writing CSS and she commits that code up to your branch, then you've also got Greg Parsons, senior super software engineer person who's also setting up all these things. And this is the kind of the one thing where their expertises are going to touch. And so it's it's something that kind of involves your entire team. Yeah, yeah. But that's why like the the continuous integration portion of it, like there in each of these aspects, there's like an entire discipline that you can talk about. So just in continuous integration, you could, let's just say you're on SVN, you could be dealing with your branching structures and you can say, you know, whenever you commit to SVN, you also need to, what was the command? I don't even remember anymore. You you would sync it to another trunk, right? And you would say like, you would cut a tag of the trunk, I believe, or you would cut a, a, a portion of the trunk and you would say, you know, this is release candidate 57.2, whatever. And in that one, you would keep syncing your changes from the mainline branch to it. And I don't remember the terms in SVN because it was years ago that I used it, but you would basically sync it into the release branch. And then in Jenkins, you could say, you know, wildcard, uh, run this job on any commit to SVN that is on a branch where it's release slash star. So any release branch would be run through the suite of tests. Right. In Git, you typically, if you're using like the, the simplest case of Git or GitHub, you would have one master branch and you would just commit code to it, which is not a very good idea. No, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not a very good idea. So the minute that I set up a project, typically... I will turn off the ability for any developer, often including administrators. Including, yes. Which no one should be committing directly to master. Sometimes ever. it's a problem because like you sometimes, <laughs> if you're the person who I, I always call the constant gardener at work, that person who's like doing all the the integration and the watching of the branches, like there are times when you want to be able to, as the person who really knows what they're doing, commit to master. But even then I would say you probably you don't You probably wanna. shouldn't do a PR. You probably don't want to, but I, I... Even for the semicolons, Greg, I know how much you really are a stickler <sighs> about those semicolons. Well, there's another, way, there's another way to fix that, and that kind of gets into... Um, so some of the other cool things that Git has is Git has the ability to do post-commit hooks where yes. you can set up on, not on the person's actual computer's Git config, but the project's Git config. Yes. You can actually allow pre-commit hooks to run certain things, like maybe it runs uh, prettier before it yes. commits. The problem with that, though, is that when you commit, it's going to block, it's going to run prettier, it's going to modify the files, and it's going to commit the non-changed files. The unmodified files, files, but then you're going to have more changes. But that's actually okay because... At least it gets done. At least it gets done, and then you also see that the kind of cosmetic changes of Mm -hmm. prettier is coming through as a separate commit. Yeah, right. You and I have both been on projects where a commit will come through and 
the lack of the formatting that Prettier gives you, like that you know, someone left out a comma or something like that, ends up mm-hmm. breaking the thing and it's impossible to find because it's buried in another commit. Yeah. Right? So having those kind of cosmetic things as a separate commit is one way to do it. The other way to do it also is that there's a package called Husky, which allows you to configure pre-commit hooks locally. Mm-hmm. So from the local side. So if you do git push origin release branch or whatever, it'll run the commit hooks there rather than being forced to from the GitHub side. Hmm. And so so it'll either pass or it'll, it'll be go, no go at that point. Yeah. So if you have something in there like pretty or find something that's wrong, then it'll just no go your commit and you have to fix it yeah. and then do the commit. So that's also another way to do it. Um, but these are all kind of strategies to kind of keep everybody in line. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice guardrails again, to keep our continuous pipeline going the way that we like. Keep tooling in line. Get everything all squared away. It'll save you a lot of heartache later. That seems to be a theme of the show. You hear us talking about stuff that makes our lives easier. It takes just a little bit of setup up front. It makes everything run smoothly after that. All right, moving on. Next clip is from episode five. Everything is C. This is me talking about my grand unifying theory slash conspiracy theory about what Microsoft is doing with some of the moves that they have been making with some of their products. Check it out now. So here's my, here's my grand unifying theory of what Microsoft is doing. Yeah. S- step one, acquire users through GitHub. Okay. Right. Make it free. Make it way, way better than anything GitLab could possibly do in the million years. Step two, new Chromium based browser and electron based code editor. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause the Chromium thing, and I've heard this from a couple of different places. The Chromium thing for the browser is not about the browser. It's about Electron. Interesting. Right? So if you're building a browser out of Chromium, you're going to be contributing a ton of code to Chromium, which in turn improves your Electron experience. So if you're in a position like Microsoft where you're like, I want to build something as highly integrated as Visual Studio proper, but for Joe JavaScript developer, the way that I'm going to do that is not necessarily from Visual Studio Code, but further upstream. Don't they have that like technology in Visual Studio Code that's super, super fast and Well, that's the, that's the thing. They took the early stages of like the 1.0 of Electron, which as we've seen with Atom, they couldn't figure out how to make it fast. You have Microsoft and like a handful of people on the weekend figure out how to make it fast and then they keep making it faster every single month that's crazy yeah but don't they have that like proprietary it's not proprietary it's all open source but the thing is they made it faster yeah they made it faster with the work that they're doing that they're contributing back to Electron and their own open source uh, repo of Visual Studio code itself but how come other Electron apps aren't as fast as Visual, Visual Studio code because Microsoft making a weekend project out of Visual Studio Code still can throw 10 times the amount of resources that Joe open source maintainer guy can do in a weekend. So, But aren't they doing something particular to make Visual Studio Code faster? Because can't they just, if they gave that code back, all Electron apps would run faster? I don't think it's, I, I think it's more the actual VS Code layer rather than the actual Electron layer. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's my third leg of the, the grand theme great unifying theory is that now you have a first class JavaScript 
development environment. You make it super dead simple, easy to hook into Azure from there. You're done. Every single person on the planet Earth is like, what is AWS? If you have a, if you give me a button that says, hey, deploy my Gatsby built site to an Azure backend, give me a domain. Done. And I mean, companies are on AWS, but I mean, any Joe Schmo developer will do that probably. Right. But I, I think that it's not necessarily about taking AWS customers. It's more about let's create this one seamless beginning to end pipeline and all of it is under our umbrella and all of it is controlled all at once, right? So if you have a GitHub repo, you have a deployment on Azure. I mean, what they could do is just give you a free website, like a free Gatsby site or maybe two or three per account and then they'll take people away from AWS. I mean, they probably could. They're not, I don't think they're at the point. The, the thing about AWS is that it's so, there's so many people on it, that's why it's so cheap that they can serve it up at such a low price and still make money on it because there's bazillions of people on it. Azure is not quite there yet, but Microsoft still has the resources to where they can get it there, right? They can make the investments to pack in more servers on their hardware or whatever it is that they do to make it run. So eventually to get there, hmm. Microsoft has seen the light. They know what AWS is doing. They're like, oh, we can do that. It's easy. Maybe. So that's my theory. Hmm. It's my conspiracy theory. Microsoft out here making some moves, trying to get those users. They've been making a lot of improvements to a lot of the products, GitHub, VS Code, Azure, all that stuff's been getting really good over the years. So we will see how that goes going forward. All right, next clip. This is from episode number six, Space Force Sniff. This is a nice in-depth conversation about project management of technical people by non-technical people. This is definitely worth listening to and something that Greg and I are both very passionate about. Check it out now. I would say I'm a little bit of a diva sometimes with the communication, but you know, there's just, if you let people do too many meetings, there's too many meetings in a day. I mean, I totally, I 100% agree with you. I'm, I'm on board with you. I'm just, uh, I've had the experience to where maybe some of our non-technical stakeholders that we work with don't necessarily understand the necessity of being left alone. Going back to like the focus thing, the thing that bugs me about being forced to multitask is that I can multitask on things that are related. So if someone tells me your day in a day is going to be going to meetings, taking notes, planning, figuring out how to do something, directing people, whatever, I can do that. But don't tell me that like in the same day, I'm also supposed to produce a feature. Yeah, a difficult feature, and you're gonna, you're not going to have one big block of time to do it. You're going to have thirty no. minutes here, you're, and minutes then there. they and then yeah, yeah the non technical people will end up scheduling like f just meetings all the day, and they're like, "Well, we need you to like be on this meeting with this client to like talk about this particular issue, or we need you to be here for this." And the teams don't really talk, so if they then multitask you on different projects, each one of those non technical people will amass a certain set of meetings for you, and then you look at your calendar and you're like. So when do you expect me to deliver this serious feature? And then people will tell you, oh, we're waiting on, waiting on Greg for like X. Oh, you, well, you've got like 45 minutes before lunch on Wednesday, Greg. You should, you should do it then. And then you've got another 20 minutes at 5 o'clock on Thursday. And then you've got a whole hour before your stand-up on Friday. That should do it, right? The greatest thing when you work at an agency is when people tell you, well, you're only allocated 60% to that client. And you're allocated, you know, 20% to this client. So you have 20% left. 
But then you go look in their tracking software and, and they've somehow managed to bill you at 145%. And you're like, how does that work? How does that work? Because they just, they, they, they'll think of things like this is a certain amount of time. So like they'll ask you, how long is it going to take you to build X? And you know, you're a developer. You're like, you're always going to guess. Yeah. You never know how long it's going to take unless you're building something that's already been built. And you're like, well, why am I building that? Give that to somebody else. Like we're seniors and above, like give it to somebody else. Like if you know how to build it, it's been built a hundred times. I can help this person do it. If you give me the time, I can teach them how to do it. But why are you giving that task to somebody to do? If they, you know, if they could be used for something much more important or harder. So I don't know, there's that. But then they'll say like, how long is, how long is it going to take to do that? An hour. Okay. So we'll give you, you know, an hour before lunch to do that. And then you'll be in a meeting. You go to lunch and you'll be in meetings and then you'll come back and then you'll present that to the client like an hour later after that. So it's like you start at like, I mean, you go, let's go through like the typical day of developer at an agency. You come in around nine to 10, depending, and then you're immediately in standups. If you're on more than one project, you're in two standups. And the standups are like, you know, 15, they supposed to be scrum. I, I love that. How like it's supposed to be agile, but okay. Scrums take like 30 minutes. If you aren't really actually agile and you're like, what'd you do yesterday? What are you doing today? Do you have any blockers? Like, which is the most pedantic thing when people ask you to do that. And you're like, well, you know what I did yesterday was something that I can't explain in two minutes. So come back to me when you want to talk about it. And guess what I'm doing today, that same thing. Yeah, that same thing. And, and if you want to know, and then you start explaining it and they're like, well, this is Scrum. We can't talk about that. Can't talk about that details of that. Like we're in Scrum. We're supposed to be very quick, very short, yeah. really fast. So I don't know. Yeah, if there's, if there's one thing that I would like our project managers and our non-technical stakeholders to take away from listening to this conversation is that three one-hour blocks of time is not the same as one three-hour block of time in developer hours. It is completely Because not. in a developer's mind, you can actually get everything that they want done if they actually gave you three hours of un unblocked time. I think that's your point. Yeah. They, you could totally get everything they want you to do done if they just left you alone for three hours. No slacks, no tapping on the shoulders. Nothing. It's three hours. But then they come and ask you a question yeah. and they come and ask you another question. Like, what do you well, want for lunch? What do you need for lunch? What are you doing for lunch? Do you want to go to lunch? Do you want to do hey, this? Hey, we're going to happy that? hour afterwards. Do you want to come? Yeah, it's like, the, it's funny because a lot of times you'll, you'll go to lunch, you'll come back and then you'll like sit down to work and you're like, all right, let's go for a walk and get coffee. And you're like, well, Ugh, I just got, oh my God. But you want to get coffee because you're kind of falling asleep from lunch because it was, you know. And you feel that deep thrain thrombosis coming down your legs. You're like, I want to get up and walk too. Yeah, that's true. Just, you know, standing desks aren't something people provide you or scientifically are not actually proven to be helpful. Well, it's not that they're not proven to be helpful. It's that they're not proven to be any better than sitting. Jury's still out. Anyway, there is, and this, this reminds me of an article that I think Paul Graham wrote many years ago, many years ago. It's called the Maker Verse Manager Schedule. I think I've heard of this. This is like a pinnacle article. Yeah, it is. It is basically anybody who manages developers, I think this should be required reading. As in like it, the first question that you ask a project manager of developers in the interview is, have you read this article? Tell me some of your takeaways. If they either one, don't know the article or two, don't have any takeaways, they should not be hired. That's my opinion, but. Yeah. There's also another really good book too. It's called Managing the Unmanageable. Is that a, is that a book? Of your, is that your autobiography? <laughs> <laughs> is that my autobiography? Jeez. No, I would say I'm one of the unmanageables. Yeah, probably. No, it talks about like how there's different kinds of developers. And like, if you're a project manager, there's different ways that different people work. And if you don't understand what kind, it's like, 
It's like the 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 different uh, personality types, but like in development. So it's like some people you can kind of strong arm. Some people you have to like just let them do what they want to do. I haven't had enough time to actually read the book, but it basically talks about like the different kinds of like antisocial developers. There's not like not every, uh, well, you know, just to let everybody realize not every developer is antisocial. And I'm, not every- I'm antisocial. I don't think you're antisocial. No, let, let me be very clear about this. I got into doing this work specifically because I didn't have to talk to other people. And it allowed me to focus and really use my brain and really get deep in very tricky, difficult technical problems because I didn't have to talk to other people. It was a, it was a selling point of this career. How's it working I, out? I don't know if that <laughs> comes out to be meaning antisocial, but I kind of mean that as a joke. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but part of why developers, I, I would say part of why developers get into this business is because they're naturally introverted and they do have a lot more energy and are able to work better when they're not constantly talking to other people. Too many meetings, folks. Get rid of your meetings. You don't need them. Trust us. You don't need them. All right. Next clip is from episode number 18, Clown Time. Listeners of the show will know that I've been trying to convince Greg of the beauty and fantasticness of TypeScript. And in this episode, in this clip, I have finally, 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 finally found the perfect example to convince him of the usefulness of TypeScript. So let's listen now. Imagine if they went in and they said, we're going to allow you to build any React component as long as it passes our strict compiler rules. Mm. Where you can't do certain things. You can't, you can't just make random Ajax requests inside of your component mounts. Yeah. What is this? What is this? Bitmine? What? You can't have that. Yeah. What is this thing? So imagine if they did that and they had, it was like Apple where you had to submit a React component to the store or to your own store. And then once you did that, they would basically create an isolated world where you could put any React component you want to in the thing and it would, it would be accepting as props whatever values you set up in your, your config. So like instead of authoring each individual component, maybe you made like data components and you said, well, this one has access to products, this one has access to the cart, this one has access to this. This is like no, these known objects in Shopify. Yeah, you know how Shopify would be able to enforce that? A compiler rule inside of Babel or something? TypeScript. Okay, fine. That would be a very, yeah, that would be a good use case for TypeScript. Yes. Good job, you won. Yes, that would be a decent use case for TypeScript, yes. So imagine if they created a Victory! TypeScript. <laughs> imagine if they created a TypeScript rule and they created their own TSLint situations where it could determine like, are you doing things that are illegal or illegal? And then these are the only utilities you can use to access whatever. And your components have to be self-isolated, have no webpack, and they have to be compiler by the compilable by their SSR compiler. I mean, they could even take it one step further and say, here are your interfaces. These are the only interfaces you're allowed to use. Oh yeah, you can do that with TypeScript. So I'm liking your idea. Yeah, that would be a good Boom. use case for TypeScript. Yep. Boom. Yeah, if it doesn't inherit from this interface, then you can't use it for this particular reason. Like you want your own product list or you want your own product detail component. The part that deals with Shopify's commerce can only use this interface. Yes. You're basically defining the API that they can use in a very, very strict way. And it also makes their development time. Like if you're a person who develops Shopify themes, it makes your life a lot easier because you know exactly what props you can and can't use and you structure around it. So imagine this world where we're rewriting Shopify right now. Oh, man. They would. 
I'm not saying we would be able to because it's, it's actually pretty dope. It's technology. actually a good product, yes. It is. But imagine Sponsors, if, please. <laughs> imagine if they created these interfaces, they created some kind of compiler rule, some TSLint stuff that's enforced on the server. They also had a little bit of manual review. Yes. Shopify, if you're listening, Dolphin still stands. We'll definitely fix that stuff for you. And or if you'd love to sponsor a show, let us know. Finally, was able to convince Greg that TypeScript is fantastic. Moving on to the last clip. Now, this clip is a little bit of a lighter one. Uh, it is the moment where Greg suggests a ridiculous, ridiculous award that we should be aspiring to. And you can kind of hear it in my voice about how I feel about his suggestion. So let's listen now. Wow. I, I enjoy doing it though. I think it's fine. I like, I like. Got a property Twitter. resume executive producer of a podcast. I don't even have award it. Winning, <laughs> award winning podcast. What are the awards you want for Peabody's? I don't know. What's the award you want for a podcast? Uh, do they do podcasts on Webby's? No, there's like a, I think you can win the journalism award. A Pulitzer? Yes. I think you what? can win a Pulitzer for podcasting. So there's your goals. There's your future. There's your end game. So. Kendrick Lamar, we're coming for you. Totally. I don't know if we could do that, but sure. Oh my goodness. Winning a Pulitzer for a podcast. Uh, what, you got to wow. check. What, what awards? Do you, this is your research. What awards can you win for making a podcast? And then, yeah, see? Best Pulitzer podcast. Are you kidding me? Yes, it's like a thing. Well, it's going to be like... Oh, I don't know if that's... Uh, that might be a network or something. Let's look this. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to look into this because we need to get Albert a long-term goal. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Indeed. Greg out here just reaching for the stars. Pretty crazy stuff. With any luck, with any help from our fantastic listeners, maybe we'll get there someday. We'll definitely talk about that on the show when it happens. Folks, this has been episode number 33 of the Public Function Show. Thank you so much for listening. Greg can be reached on Twitter at Grigorski. I'm at Al Park. This show is at a public function. We tweet there whenever new episodes go up, typically on Tuesdays of every week. Let's do something different this week. If you'd like to tweet at the show and let us know what your favorite conversation from the show has been, let us know there and we'll retweet the best answers from there. And who knows? Maybe we'll collect those and put them together for the next upcoming collection of clips show episode for the future. Who knows? That might be a fun thing to do. If you'd like to check us out on the web, we're at a couple of different places. Public function dot shows our homepage, all the episodes, all the show notes, pictures of our smiling faces will be there for you to see. This is episode 33. So we'll be public function dot show backslash zero three three. We're also over at dev dot two, dev dot two backslash public function. We are amongst many greats on their podcast roles there. A lot of good information on the site as well. Shout out to Ben Halpern. Shout out to our, the whole team over there for letting us hang out with some, some pretty heavy hitters over on the podcast rolls. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, publicfunction.show backslash contact is the contact form you can use. You can also email us directly at hello at publicfunction.show. I manage that email address personally. I will read every single one that comes through. If you say something nice about us, you know, we'll read on the air. We'll let you know. We'll put you, uh, we'll give you some notoriety on the show. So let us know what's going on there. We will be back to our regularly scheduled programming in our next episode. So stay on the 
stay tuned for that. Greg doesn't have anything else this week, so we will see all of you next week. Bye.